They mingled with torrents pouring down the strand on their way to acclaim the king. Almost before the last stroke of the clock had died away, the strict war-straightened regulated streets of London had become a triumphant pandemonium. At any rate, it was clear that no more work would be done that day. The curtain falls upon the long front in France and Flanders. The soothing hands of time and nature, the swift repair of peaceful industry, have already almost effaced the crater fields and the battle lines, which in a broad belt from the Vosges to the sea lately blackened the smiling fields of France. The ruins are rebuilt. The riven trees are replaced by new plantations. Only the cemeteries, the monuments, and stunted steeples, with here and there a mouldering trench or huge mine crater lake, assail the traveler with the fact that 25 millions of soldiers fought here and 12 millions shed their blood or perished in the greatest of all human contentions less than 20 years ago. Merciful oblivion draws his veils. The crippled limp away, the mourners fall back into the sad twilight of memory. New youth is here to claim its rights, and the perennial stream flows forward, even in the battle zone, as if the tale were all a dream. Is this the end? Is it to be merely a chapter in a cruel and senseless story? Will a new generation in their turn be immolated to square the black accounts of Teuton and Gaul? Will our children bleed and gasp again in devastated lands? Or will there spring from the very fires of conflict that reconciliation of the three giant combatants which would unite their genius and secure to each in safety and freedom a share in rebuilding the glory of Europe? Winston Churchill, his reflections upon the hour of armistice, 11 a.m., the 11th of November, 1918. And now, from his memoirs of the Second World War, Winston Churchill reads Chapter 1, 1919 to 1929, The Follies of the Victors. After the end of the World War of 1914, there was a deep conviction and almost universal hope that peace would reign in the world. This heart's desire of all the peoples could easily have been gained by steadfastness in righteous convictions and by reasonable common sense and prudence. The phrase, the war to end war, was on every lip and measures had been taken to turn it into reality. President Wilson, wielding as was thought the authority of the United States, had made the conception of a League of Nations dominant in all minds. The British delegation at Versailles molded and shaped its ideas into an instrument which will forever constitute a milestone in the hard march of man. The victorious armies were at that time all-powerful so far as their outside enemies were concerned. They had to face grave internal difficulties and many riddles to which they did not know the answer. But the Teutonic powers in the great mass of Central Europe, which had made the upheaval, were prostrate before them. And Russia, already shattered by the German flail, was convulsed by civil war 
and falling into the grip of the Bolshevik or Communist Party. In the summer of 1919, the Allied armies stood along the Rhine and their bridgeheads bulged deeply into defeated, disarmed and hungry Germany. The chiefs of the victor powers debated and disputed the future in Paris. Before them lay the map of Europe, to be redrawn almost as they might resolve. Germany, the head and forefront of the offence, regarded by all as the prime cause of the catastrophe which had fallen upon the world, was at the mercy or discretion of conquerors, themselves reeling from the torment they had endured. The war leaders assembled in Paris had been borne thither upon the strongest and most furious tides that have ever flowed in human history. Gone were the days of the treaties of Utrecht and Vienna, when aristocrats...